Welcome to the Arts Union Science Journal. Please enter your password. of the Arts Union Science Grand Panel. Welcome to the first annual endeavor to award good movies the way others award good science. Today we begin our grant panel proper by running down half of the 10 films that are up for both an Oscar Best Picture and, more importantly, an Arts Union Science Grant. My name is Tyler D.R. Vance. I will be your co-chair. And joining us once again is our other co-chair, Aditi Ramesh. How are you doing today? Hello. I'm good, Tyler. I'm good, good. Very excited today. Yeah, so how how have your Oscar film watching endeavors been? Is like have you been able to like get out there and really like see some high quality film? Yeah, it's sort of been a, a mixed bag in terms of where I've been able to see them, just in terms of availability and show times and so forth. But um it's sort of been a, a fifty fifty between able being able to see uh films in theaters and uh the other half sort of seen on streaming services, uh at home at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a few of them in theaters. The vast majority that I've seen is like has been through streaming services. It is nice that we live in this modern era where we can do such things. Um, I would like to be able to see some of them in theaters, especially the one that we're not going to talk about this week, which is three hours long, which I feel I need a theater in order to keep my attention because I am becoming a, uh, a child of the modern era. It's like a disciple of YouTube. <laughs> And it's it's not going well for my ability to sit through three-hour movies. <laughs> I feel the same, Tyler, definitely. Uh, if I'm streaming something, the ability to pause and then go and, you know, take out a load of laundry or something ends up becoming overly distracting. Yeah. Yeah, even for, like, movies that I absolutely love, there'll be moments where I'm just kind of like, oh, I'm just, it's like, and I realize I haven't been watching the movie for the past like two minutes, I've been on my phone. Even during these podcasts, I have to sit down here, get my setup, because I take the phone out to make sure that everything's working all right, so with that, and then throw it to the other side of the room so that I don't look at it at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then I hope it's still functional and not broken at the end of the hour. Oh, the poor, the poor thing has been around since 2017. It's been dropped on every surface from concrete to uh, to water, so it's it's uh, it's lived its life at this point. If it um. If the next throw happens to be its last, I'm sure it'll die happy. Uh, at this point, well, I think maybe have to, you know, include some endorsements if, uh, if this phone lasts through all these tosses and then uh, see if we can get some some ad dollars. That's true. We haven't really like been pimping ourselves out for a whole lot of ad dollars of late. It's like we, uh, you know, we tried early on by setting up the, the ongoing uh, blood feud between LG and Toshiba TVs to really try and get the the like electronic crowd in on it um so maybe yeah maybe you're right maybe i need to start as like finding my way towards saying hey samsung i shouted out your phone and the way that i threw it all over the place and it still kind of works sometimes when it feels like it <laughs> i mean i hate to to bring down the endorsement from samsung but i have had phones from them that have not been as long lived so i've just tanked their ad dollars i'm sorry Oh, uh, we will. I, I I sense that the next blood feud is going to be a big one <laughs> between <laughs> Samsung v Apple. Yep. Regardless, ad dollars, give them to us. 
<laughs> One way or another, any of, any of the people we just mentioned, give us ad dollars so you can hear more amazing content like this. And what's going to be coming up after this? Because for those of you who skipped the last episode, uh, this is going to actually be the first of two episodes in which we mimic the scientific grant panel, but for movies. Um, so using the 10 Best Picture nominees as our shortlist, we will endeavor to hand out three grants to the films that show cinematic greatness. Two of the grants are called AUS Project Grants. They are for amazing movies that capture the times in which we live. And the last grant is called the AUS Foundation Grant. It is for filmmaking crews that we are most excited to see reassemble for their next project. Um, but the handing out of those awards will still be several hours and a whole episode away. Because first, we have to discuss the nominees in question. Um, so there are 10 nominees for Best Picture, as previously stated. Um, the five that will not be discussed this week, they will be discussed for next week, are Belfast, Coda, Drive My Car, Licorice Pizza, and Nightmare Alley. That means that the five that we will be discussing this week are Don't Look Up, Dune, West Side Story, King Richard, and The Power of the Dog. Um, to be clear, we are going to try to avoid major spoilers throughout our discussion for the first time in Arts Union Science history, because these are very new movies. And we are hoping that you're going to get out there and go and see them and extend, talk to us about them and engage with whatever the heck you like to engage with with movies. So we're going to try to avoid major spoilers, which are defined as non-obvious plot points, character resolutions, and intensely specific descriptions of things. We're going to try to do it the way that the Film Spotting Podcast does it, with kind of like talking around things, getting to your emotional subjective core of something while giving as little context as possible so that when you see the movie, you can be like, oh yeah, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> exactly. So with that, I think the best place to start is with the most controversial entry on this whole thing, which is Don't Look Up. We're going to be kind of we've kind of uh, decided to tag team this whole setup so that some of the movies I'm going to be leading the discussion, some of the movies Aditi is going to be leading the discussion, um, and some of the movies ain't going to be much of a discussion at all because only one of the two of us have seen it. Fortunately, Don't Look Up is one that we have both seen because who hasn't seen this movie? It's like even our good friend Alana Smith, who is is like a um, uh, shall we say not that into movies, uh, joined our movie club for the like the society showed up was like once um, to enjoy it is like the the camaraderie of the event and then never showed up again. She's still seen this movie. So it's like, it's, it's everywhere. It's been all over the place. I'm, sh I'm sure everybody's seen it. Um, did you end up seeing this like over the holidays or was this kind of like a uh, an after holidays thing? Uh, it was definitely an after holiday thing. It was something that sort of permeated my consciousness throughout the holidays and, you know, the... Uh the heavy hitting cast and um, direction it was sort of in the cultural consciousness for a couple of months. And then I uh, ended up watching it uh, at some point in the beginning of January. Um, uh, I hate to admit it was sort of during my work day at lunchtime that I started it. So it was sort of <laughs> streaming on a, on a chill day at work. So uh, that's where I sort of watched it just by myself at home. Yeah. yeah well, I ended up, I did actually watch it with my family when I was back home for the holidays. Um, and yeah, it was just one of those things that like, you know, Netflix just sometimes they pick a movie and they're like, okay, this one, 
we're just going to throw it at them. Like every time they try to watch another movie, we're going to tell them about this. Every time they stop watching a show, it's like we're going to be like, did you want to watch this next? Too bad because the trailer starting in five seconds. You're like, it's like <laughs> scrambling for the remote. And so I think with just the sheer ubiquitousness of this, it was it was uh, it was going to happen. My parents were going to watch it and I was going to watch it with them. Um, but if you are one of those people out there that is somehow never seen Don't Look Up, perhaps never even heard of it. Um, this is kind of a nice summary or a very, very small, brief summary of the premise, um, which is effectively humanity fractures further in the face of an incoming comet that will destroy the world if it hits. Um, and so that's the kind of like pithy one sentence aspect. But if you look at it, it's effectively about a um, government who doesn't want to respond to scientific knowledge that the world is coming to an end um, and would much rather pref- is like to ignore it uh, in the face of not wanting to a cause a panic, but more is like specifically b improve is like uh, not like take down their um, their ratings as because you know telling everyone the world's going to end uh, not not good television doesn't make for people to be very very pleased with themselves. Uh, so clearly, this has a lot of connections to what it was intended to be for, which was the uh, about climate change and our lack of response to climate change. But it also is like um, serendipitously was being made during the COVID pandemic. Um, and so when it came out, it also just happened to be a very interesting um, kind of satire of the Trump administration's handling of COVID response. And not just Trump administration, but pretty much all governments across the world that were trying desperately to ignore the signs that this was going to be something that they're going to have to deal with. And, uh, you know, like, on the one hand, you can't blame them. I don't like dealing with stuff. It sucks when people are saying, you're going to need to do this. You need to like make a doctor's appointment. It's like, you need to do all that. And I'm like, but I'd really prefer not to. It's just kind of like human nature. But at the same time, you know, you're a government. Okay, your job, man whatever <laughs> hard enough to take self-autonomy and, and decisions versus uh, uh decisions over a whole country or, or globally i guess exactly exactly um and so this this film has had kind of what shall we call it um a polarizing uh, effect which is funny because it is about the uh like the partisan polarization of humanity even on things that should be recognizable facts um it's like the uh, the line itself, don't look up, is in reference to the fact that the government tells people, its followers, not to look up so that they won't see the comet coming at them. Um, and uh, it has a lot of strengths as kind of this sort of satire. It is done by Adam McKay, who did um, The Big Short and Vice. Um, did you see those movies, those previous entries in Adam McKay's like new kind of section of his career where he stopped making Will Ferrell comedies like Talladega Nights and Anchorman and then started making like weird smarmy historically associated um, kind of like satires about the government failing to do things that they obviously should have done yeah I mean the only one that I've seen in sort of his his newly I guess energized and, and different uh, directorial career um, was the big short. Uh, mm. which he also directed and wrote. And I think in the case of Don't Look Up, he also produced it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I found a lot of similarities between between the two. And I mean, his filmmaking style now might either be something that you really, really like or really don't like, but they are very similar. Yeah. 
yeah, he uh, he kept a lot of the um, the kind of wit. There's like a lot of the yeah, what I've described as kind of like a smarmy sense of humor is like there is a little bit of a kind of elbow to the it's like ribs aspect to his movies, which I think can rub people the wrong way. A lot of people have referred to this movie as being smug and like and not just the people that it's obviously satirizing, but is like, but like other people is like, like people who are very much in, fo- in favor of what he's kind of like pushing, especially on the climate change front, still find his stuff to be smug at times. And um, I can see it. I was like, it's, it's there for sure. But for me, this felt less of kind of like a smarmy, like, aha, I'm so much smarter than you. I'm so smug as much as like, just like venting. It felt like desperation. There were like moments where characters literally screaming at the camera, like, it's like out of like despair, like we need to do Mm -hmm. something here. And I feel like that is really the emotion that I felt behind this a lot more. Um, Less the kind of like, I'm smarter than you. And more the kind of like, we need to do something about this is like it, why is no one else freaking out i'm freaking out why aren't you freaking out <laughs> yeah i i felt very much the same in in that i felt like in the big short it was a it, the big short to me did come off a little bit smug in that it was a very slick production and um sort of fast talked you through the the crisis the financial mm-hmm. crisis um but in this movie Maybe the, the reason why it didn't land for me um, personally was that I felt I'd already heard it before just by having kind of lived through it. And I think that the uh, the satire on essentially, the, you know, climate change and political unrest and, you know, the world essentially ending in so many different facets has already exhausted us over the course of the last two years and maybe more prior to the pandemic, that watching a film that continued to do so was just a little bit uh a little bit on the nose and maybe just uh emotionally exhausting for me yeah on the nose is definitely one of the weaknesses that i have written down for this in the way that it is a satire and it's definitely a satire and when you're looking at it in terms of climate change because you know the thing that makes climate change difficult to respond to aside from the fact that it requires like economic hardship and a complete change of the way that we view our our role as stewards of the planet is that it is kind of, you know, slow, and there's no definitive timeline, and the timelines keep shifting. And we'll have people like Al Gore, who will stand up there and say, this is going to happen in 10 years, and it doesn't happen in 10 years. And everyone sits there and kind of goes like, well, you see, he was lying. And it's like, no, it's like things, we don't, it's all models, it's all prediction. It is happening, but there's no indication of exactly how quickly it will, as opposed to something like a comet's going to hit us. This is the exact day it's going to hit. This is what's going to happen. We need to do something. The satire, the kind of over-the-top satirical portion about it is applying what we've already seen to something kind of slow and chronic and applying it to something that acute and intense. And in some ways, that would have maybe seemed less on the nose if COVID hadn't also happened, which, which was much more immediate and intense, like an obvious thing that was happening. And they still had the same response. So by the time this comes out, it's like, isn't this satirical? Like, no, nah, I think this is just kind of the way to go. <laughs> like, I feel at this point, like, this is, you're just... This is just what would happen. Yeah, and I, I think that it's sort of interesting the way they reframed, I mean, like climate change, sort of linking it back to um, the big short and sort of a financial crisis. Climate change poses itself as a, a green swan event or a green swan risk, which is, you know, mm-hmm. essentially a unexpected and rare occurrence with like far-reaching financial impact. But it's almost 
kind of turned on its head and turned into this like you know uh giant asteroid coming and uh about to annihilate the earth which is more of like a not even a black swan event but more of just like a absolute destruction event like forget financial crisis there's going to be nothing as we know it left anymore that that um aspect of it was sort of interesting yeah yeah and it's so the I think my favorite part of this movie and the thing that kind of makes me like take pause when people are talking about the smugness of it especially is that near the end there's this especially like emotionally poignant scene that takes place with like a family at a dining table and like for me myself I was watching this with my family I was seeing this happen and I couldn't help but feel like of a strong sense of like emotional catharsis with that and like I I've never felt that like in any other like uh, Adam McKay film that I've seen so far. Like, and so I think that he is growing as a, a filmmaker and an ability to be able to actually evoke those sorts of emotions. Um, and he is also pretty good at like, kind of like, even in the big short, yeah, the vast majority of his like smooth talking, like finger snapping, like it's like, like Ryan Gosling in that movie, just kind of like a, a smooth talker. He narrates a lot of it. And you can feel that kind of like slick swab, ain't I so smart sensibility to the whole thing. And then there's a portion in the movie where like, the main characters are in the process of kind of like gaming the system and like playing this whole thing. And they're like, yeah, we're going to like get so much money. And then Brad Pitt's there to be basically say like, do you know what you just did? You just bet against the it's like American economy. Effectively, if you win, there's going to be huge financial consequences. People are going to lose their jobs. Your family could be at risk and stuff like that. It's like, so don't celebrate this. And, it's like, and I think that ability to kind of like draw you into his shtick and then kind of like turn around and be like, but hey, could be seen as like very, like kind of like smug again, because it's like, I was just following your lead. But I think it is a cool kind of trick to be able to get you into the style and then just like stop you up with the emotional context of the reality of it. And I think he's done that since the big short. I think he did it here well, it's like pretty well. Yeah, almost like a, there are no winners. Like you might think you're winning, but no one's winning. No, we're all losers. <laughs> I think it was brought to fruition um, largely because he also manages to uh, to corral such a uh, talented and a heavy-hitting cast as well. Like that scene that you alluded to, sort of family at a dinner table. Um, there were some very fine actors sitting around that table. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's it is one of those scenarios where, like, this is one of those movies where, like, you start to be surprised when someone shows up and they're not a, a, like an A-list actor. Like just random people show up and you're like, hey, that's the guy from CSI. Hey, it's Timmy. Little Timmy Chalamet. What are you doing here? And like all of this <laughs> sort of thing going through. It's like, and then, yeah, you, meanwhile, the like the lead cast, like I haven't seen Jennifer Lawrence in a movie in a long time and she was great. Leonardo DiCaprio is always fantastic. Meryl Streep as like the Trump-esque president. Fantastic. Yeah. Mark Rylance as the uh, essentially Mark Zuckerberg of this movie. <laughs> I love Mark Rylance. I've heard things that uh, are effectively talking about how they feel like his performance is a little like um, tone deaf when it comes to people who are on the spectrum. I didn't read it that way, but I'm not as familiar with that as other people might be. Still, I find that Mark Rylance is a, is a great actor. So I'm always pleased to see him on screen whenever he shows up. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do agree with some of that criticism without maybe having as much uh, knowledge or, or, you know, say in, in the matter. But uh, I think he he played the role that he was meant to play, which was essentially a, 
like a, a metaverse-esque kind of tech billionaire that uh, is tone deaf to the realities of the rest of the world and the rest of society and is furthering his own gains at the cost of everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right that the cast does a lot of the heavy lifting here for Adam McKay. It's like, um, and they, it's like, that's been the case with a lot of his movies. Um, is it, and I also think that the, uh, the kind of controversy is one of those situations that has kind of earned it this place in the, it's like the best picture nominees. Because it is not my favorite by far of the movies that I've seen so far. It is actually probably my least favorite, but it is definitely the one that the most people have seen. And it's the one that's going to get the most attention. And um, it'll be interesting to see what that means for it on the night of the Oscars. And more importantly, what it will mean for our is like our little um, our grants that we're going to be giving out. Because I do have to ask the question, um, do you think this film would actually be a good representation of 2021? A.K.A. is it... Um, not susceptible what is the word i'm thinking of would you be able to give it an aus project grant without issue (laughs) so i mean i think that that my my comment to that or response to that is sort of a a two-pronged answer in which i think that this is of all the films probably the best representation of 2021 itself just based on Mm -hmm. the fact that we were living through a pandemic still have lived through it for the last two years. Climate change has been an issue for gosh knows like decades already and it's something that isn't being addressed. And so I think this is the most socially commenting uh, topical movie, but it's something that I don't think I'd watch again. I didn't feel like it resonated with me on a deeper level in terms of like emotionally connecting with me or otherwise being like a, like a long-standing like film that you could watch, you know, 10 years from now and still gain a lot from it. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't think I'd give it a project grant. I'd, I'd say give it a watch and tell me what you think about it. But I don't know if it has a lot of long-lasting impact. And I'm not sure unless Adam McKay moves from this very on-the-nose satire into maybe a slightly kind of... Um, buffed out and like softened approach i'm not sure i'd want to see a movie just like this made again yeah yeah i think that's uh pretty much what i have written down is like yes it is definitely a good representation of 2020 and almost a little too good in the way that um Mm -hmm. i think it's like this type of thing requires a little bit of distance there is no nuance to this sort of like satire and it is like many much of our content now not designed to be able to be played for both sides is like and to be useful it is designed to be played for the people who very much agree with adam mckay so they can say yeah and then the other people who don't agree will get angry and then it'll just cause more kind of issues and division so like whatever his intention was with this movie if it was to invoke change i don't think that's going to be what it is and so i think that something maybe a movie that is about this type of topic but from a couple of years down the line hopefully when things have gotten better or hopefully with it's like a little bit of distance might actually be a better, a better call. But I don't think that this is the movie. Well, this may be the movie to describe 2021 and how it feels to be in 2021 for a certain group of people. Um, I don't think that that actually makes it is. I think that's actually a kind of a down it's downfall in this case. And I agree. If we're thinking about 
the promise of future success about whether this would be eligible, which was the word I was looking before, for the uh, Arts Union Science Foundation grant of looking at the filmmakers and seeing if they would be given a grant to be able to go forth and produce more content. I think I would agree with your final sentiment where you're kind of like, I think for a while I've seen enough of Adam McKay's stuff unless he wants to pivot in some way. Um, yeah. Is that I'm getting the feeling that we're, we're seeing diminishing returns. So I'm getting the feeling that we've seen the best we're going to see of him. And uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ready for another one. And I also don't think that film Twitter can handle another one. <laughs> I think that uh, maybe what it is, is that the, the big short was, was new when it came out. And so I, I found it sort of like a fresh take on describing real world events. Whereas mm -hmm. I think by the time this movie has come around, it's, neither fresh nor new and by not new I mean like not new for Adam McKay and not fresh because we, we're already living through it and I think that releasing a movie like this during the pandemic when we're already living through it and already kind of like worn down and you know exhausted from it mm -hmm. at least in my opinion didn't lead to the best reception agreed even if you are agreeing totally with him 100 percent um, on all the viewpoints as uh, portrayed by all of these characters. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, and so with that, I think we'll leave Don't Look Up. We will continue to stare pointedly at our feet, I suppose, and we'll move into something that is, uh, it's like, uh, shall we say, um, completely different. Villeneuve's is like take on the well, remake of the David Lynch film based on the book. It's like uh, by Francis Herbert. Hubbard? Hubert. Herbert? Herbert? <laughs> we'll just sort <laughs> we'll of say that to ourselves. But um, yeah, I, I think that even that sort of intro has uh, has described the storied history that June has already had and has in in essentially the cultural consciousness already vis-a-vis -vis, you know star wars and, and other sci-fi adaptations um since uh frank herbert wrote uh these books um well before these movies were made and um sort of to summarize the film in sort of one line i would say it's you know the story of a, a gifted young man or or um kind of prophesized young man, Paul Atreides, who's born to a destiny or a destiny that's almost sort of been shaped for him and that will shape the future of this uh, this feudalistic universe that depends on melange. And so it's, it's very, you know, on the nose in that it's a very messianic kind of um, story as portrayed by Timothy Chalamet's Paul Atreides. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to start. Maybe is in terms of the this like um, 
what did you think of the actual like the performances because similar to don't look up this is like quite an impressive cast and there's been a lot of comment on how well the members of the cast do with actually being able to reflect the characters that people have either come to know and love throughout their many many years of uh dune um, immersion or have never seen before and are wondering what's up with the things that are stuck in people's noses what's going on here yeah, and and I mean, I think that um, just a bit of like backstory, I guess, to the development of this film is that uh, Denis Villeneuve is a huge fan of Dune and like loves the universe. And in my opinion, I think that love really comes out in this film and comes out in the performances of the cast. And I've actually sort of even jotted down as as a lot of these strengths of the film. One of them being. It, it's a very well cast film. And I knew that the movie was being made when I went back to read the book for the first time. And having seen the movie after having read um, the first Dune novel, I feel it is very well cast, especially vis-a-vis um, Oscar Isaac, Duke Leto Atreides, and uh, Rebecca Ferguson, um, Jessica. Um, the sort of Bene Gesserit concubine of Leto Atreides. And I think that um, Timothy Chalamet works very well in terms of the physicality that's described in the book and is then portrayed on screen by him as well. And the rest of the yeah. cast is fantastic. And we can take them in turn as we discuss the different roles, but just very well cast in general. And you can tell that the movie was made with a, uh, a certain reverence for the source material. Yeah, and that that reverence is definitely on display here. It's like um, when they describe when they told me that Denis Villeneuve was gonna well, actually no, it's like when they said they were gonna make a Dune movie, I'm like, good luck. And then they're like, Denis Villeneuve's gonna direct it. I'm like, hmm, okay, I could see this working. Is like, and I think he has kind of like earned himself a reputation at this point of being able to make huge budget thinky man sci-fi in a way that um has not really existed for a long while. He's become kind of like the new Christopher Nolan before Christopher Nolan was claimed by the film bros in ways that, uh, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't really enjoy. <laughs> um, but he is like, I think that definitely what you're saying is that like, his love for it has show is like is showcased here. And, um, I'm interested is like in kind of the, so is it having read the novel is like and you've already it's like you've it's like laid out a few of the it's like the actors that you feel did a really good job of portraying their characters. I was kind of having issues throughout with Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal of Jessica, not because of anything she was doing. She was doing a great job, but specifically how they decided decided to portray the character and give her a lot more emotional like outer response as opposed to like how the character is portrayed in the novel which is very outwardly stoic even though she is having yeah. like a lot of internal stuff and that's kind of what timothy chalamet is doing you can feel that in his character there's a lot of interiority to paul atreides that is kind of going on behind a very blank timothy chalamet and i think he does a good job of portraying that it's like um that interiority why do you think they decided to make jessica more outwardly emotional it's like um as a is like as a choice in the film I mean, I think that there is a certain challenge to adapting this film to begin with. And, you know, uh, the the Lynch version, I think, has had its issues. I haven't seen it, but I've read a lot about it and heard a lot about what 
he tried to incorporate in it. And I mean, admittedly, he also, you know, inherited the film at a crucial juncture that was already over budget and all of that stuff. Mm. Um, but I think that there is an intrinsic challenge to adapting this because so much of the book is an inner monologue that it's very hard to necessarily, I guess, like portray inner narration or inner monologue on screen. And mm -hmm. that actually leads to one of the weaknesses that I felt was in the film. And I'm not sure if this is necessarily a, a criticism on Teddy Villeneuve or on like the, the film itself, but maybe on just the difficulty to adapt the source material because there is so much of this inner monologue that I didn't feel like there was a lot of emotional investment in these characters. It was, it was a very um, well-produced, like amazing set design you had like a sense of scale and atmosphere building and world building but in terms of emotional connection to the characters you sort of had to interpolate that from what you saw of the universe like kind of place these characters within that scale and I think maybe this outward uh, emoting was an attempt to connect us to the character because there's a very much like a like a stoic uh, Bene Gesserit upbringing that Jessica has had that I think that if she had kept to that stoicism would have also been a little bit dull on screen. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. And it's like in my head, kind of, they, I think they needed to have a character that was going to emote. Um, they needed a character that was going to be able to kind of like showcase the tension of this, of the scenario that they're in. Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of bothered me that they chose Jessica to be the one to do that as opposed to like any of the other characters, because there are like all the other characters are portrayed like very stoically. Um, and like, you have to kind of infer their emotional state. It kind of bothered me that it was like Jessica, who was the one that ended up having to play the, like kind of lift the emotional burden of the whole film for the audience to see and like hold it up and be like, by the way, we're all freaked out. And you're like, Oh, okay. That's good to know. By the woman, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Maybe is a little bit telling in that sense as well. Yeah, that that kind of bothered me. Um, but speaking of characters that pretty much just deadlifted the entirety of like an emotion <laughs> on their shoulder and carried it, um, Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho in this, like he lit up the screen every time he showed up for me. Like it was just kind of like he would be. I'd be like, wow, this is a very like somber and dark movie. And like, yeah, you're as yeah. you said, like. I'm having a hard time getting really emotionally invested, but I'm amazed by the visuals and this logo. And then Duncan Idaho would show up and just like crank the like the energy to eleven. I'd be like, okay, okay, I'm getting on, I'm getting on board now. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, in a in a movie that was otherwise very serious and didn't didn't inject a lot of like comedy, because I think to a certain extent we're used to seeing these like big action set pieces in you know modern times and either like a you know marvel universe or um you know, like mission impossible or jason Bourne, where like it is gritty and real and serious but there's also space for humor and comedy which in dune i think largely because there's a lot of ground to cover and a lot of atmosphere and world building to cover as well that it's hard to necessarily find time for a lot of comedy that mm -hmm. duncan idaho was definitely that that light in it without it really pulling you out of the world which was very nice to see yeah yeah for sure um and then i think 
I, I just I just feel like we we do need to like continue moving and talk about other movies, but like we we gotta just like gush about the visuals and the music for a bit, right? Like that's just that's just so good. I mean, you got Hans Zimmer on the job, so I think that he's he's doing a good job uh, building the the musical atmosphere. And I think that the one thing that was really lovingly and um, accurately I would say at least based on my imagination when I was reading the book um, put to screen was as I I think mentioned before just a sense of scale Mm. and like you kind of got an idea of how this world really is like it's at once this desert landscape on Arrakis um, where the Fremen live but on the other hand you also see how like there's these small details of how high tech it is with these like lamps that follow them and these ornithopters that essentially like beat like insect wings to like raise these, you know, helicopter-esque, future-esque flight vehicles into the sky. And um, there isn't a lot of over-explaining of all of this and not a lot of uh, like jargon. Like I feel like it's very easy to just sort of throw like this is this, piece of tech and this is this other thing whereas you're just like okay I know melange is important like you know spice is very important but it's sort of like the soft sci-fi that Frank Herbert has written just saying okay this just makes all this tech possible enjoy seeing it on screen with you know today's CGI and FX um, to the fullest degree and the sort of visuals and scope and ambition that Danny Villeneuve had, I feel very much has been translated very well to screen. A hundred percent. There are like, there are images from this movie that still just kind of like are sitting in the back of my head, just waiting to pop in every so often be like, by the way, remember this shot of like a, of just like these like massive battle between two like groups as like ships are being shot out of the sky and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, okay. Just, just remember that you remember that. Cool. Cool fades back oh and remember the part where and just like it's so much of that throughout the entirety of like the weeks that followed was just remembering the individual images and i think that was very true for blade runner 2049 as well um Mm -hmm. a movie that i haven't revisited since i was like since i watched it because i loved it so much and people have pointed out tons of problems with it afterwards and i'm like I don't care. I just love the visuals. They were so pretty. And I just don't want to go back and have to deal with all of the crap that people kind of like trudged out for me. And it's like, but all these things. And I'm like, I get, get out of here. I don't care about that. It was pretty. It was cool. It, like, it was emotionally poignant in, in visual storytelling. Isn't that what a movie is supposed to be? Plot hole guy. <laughs> no. I also all watched right. this in IMAX. So it was particularly visually stunning. And I, I think that, you know, if it's going to be brought back into theaters or still in theaters at some point post-pandemic, just a, just a you know, a quick shout out to the viewers to, to watch it in IMAX if at all possible. I do suspect that they will replay this just because it was such a tough time in which to roll out a movie into theaters and, and with a part two coming out that, uh, that, Surely there will be an IMAX experience again, and I might go and see it again in IMAX. To be honest, yeah, yeah, no, I think I would do the same. It's like it's a um a visual wonder. It's like an interesting experience, um, and like a very good adaptation of half a novel, which is like and like a novel that was kind of like written up there as like being impossible to adapt. I already tried once, 
failed terribly. And I think that this one is going to be, uh, it's going to be a good, it's going to be a good uh, adaptation. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty hefty novel. Like it's not a short book. So I think no. that it makes a lot of sense to split it into in the, in the movie adaptation. Oh, yeah. And the number of people that I've seen like talk about how they made it through the first like 20 pages of Dune and couldn't go further. I'm like, yeah, it's because like the first like quarter of that novel is just like information dump after information dump. And then you get to the end of the book and like you realize that you don't even know like the vast majority of things. Like what is spice even for? Why do we need it? What do we use it for? They're like it's used for um inter- for space travel between them. Like, how? What? But I didn't even notice any of that crap when I was going through definitely the movie, but also the book, because there's just so much other stuff that you have to know about the characters, about the interpolitics of everything, about these factions that have been at like in Cold Wars with each other for like hundreds mm-hmm. of years, slowly trying to manipulate the human gene pool to produce what they want. Like it is such cool, like kind of not really is like, I guess it's like high sci-fi in a way because it is similar to high fantasy in the way that it's just so much intense world building yeah i mean i think that that again gives me like i'm I'm gushing about this film and i'll follow denny villeneuve wherever he goes with whatever controversial (laughs) movies he'll ever make because i just love everything that he's done whether you know the emotional investment or plot stuck with me um he he really puts a hundred percent of himself and his love for filmmaking into every film that he makes Mm but I, I feel like uh, like you're absolutely right when you were saying it's like a like a political sort of push and pull, and that in the end it's not really important that you know exactly how spice is used or melange as it's called, and you know he who control really all you need to know is he who controls the spice controls the universe, and so it's been given this like legendary status. And you understand from that that that's why Arrakis is so important. And then from there, it's all politics. Yeah, I gotta I gotta admit that whenever I'm pouring smoked paprika onto a dish, I'm always going, "He who controls the spice controls the universe." <laughs> and then you can't be scared of too much spice because you know fear is the mind killer. Fear is the mind killer. Yeah, it's like the the litany of fear is like one of the few things that I feel like has really permeated the culture from Dune. Um, like while everything else that's permeated the culture from Dune was is kind of like a bypass of like through Star Wars. Um it's like, but I digress. Um so like let's think a little bit about um is this film a good represent representation of 2021? Is it uh eligible for an AUS project grant? Man, that word and I are not having a good day today. <laughs> um I mean I guess I guess I'd have to revisit uh, what exactly the project grant is, but I mean, I'd fund anything that Denny Villeneuve does, and mm. I will basically want to fund Dune Part Two. Let's be clear, <laughs> I want to see it be coming to fruition, and I, it has been greenlit as far as I know, so mm-hmm. there will be a Part Two. I was also a little bit uh, uh, confused when I purchased tickets. And then I was just looking up the film just like the week beforehand. And I was like, wait, it's only part one. Like I, I was yep. like, oh, I'm going to go see Dune. Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to go see Dune part one. So we have yep. to green light part two. And I have to see part two. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I would say that this film is 
this film as it stands is not a good representation of 2021 for me. First of all, it's a, you know, it's a very old sci-fi novel. It's like, and whatnot, but the portions that make Dune still relevant to today, especially the kind of like neo-imperialism, it's like religion used as kind of like a planting seed is like, so that it can be like uh, used to control people. Although all of that sort of interesting themes, they don't really get to that in this half of Dune. Um mm-hmm. This Dune is much more about like the kind of like the politics of it's like and the family drama and the setting up of this world that is like ripe for a messiah to show up. It's like um, and so I was very excited by this movie. I think they did a very great job for it. For me personally, it's not a good representation of 2021 because without knowing where it goes, it almost has kind of like an unintended like a. Uh, stamp of approval is like on imperialism <laughs> and um i think that is like that will that stamp will be easily war is like washed away in this like with a part two where you really start dealing with kind of the the machinations of what was required to get all of this to come into place and what it will mean for the universe at large yeah i mean i i agree and disagree with that tyler to be honest because mm-hmm. i, yep, I yep. do think that there was a certain piece of this that did resonate with me as in keeping with 2021 times or 2022 as it may be or current mm-hmm. times in general um, because there was a, a section that almost detailed the plight of the Fremen which I think is very much a plight of any subjugated or conquered people which continues to happen um, whether it's under like imperialism or democracy or free world or whatever um, it might be our rissification of Ukraine as is, you know, a very current mm. topic now. Um, and I think that part two, based on the the book material, will focus a lot more on the Fremen, which, as you you mentioned, um, would be more in keeping with 2021. But I think there was a little bit of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I do admit that there was a lot of this. Uh, neo-imperialism, like feudalistic society that is not really as relevant, at least in North America. Yeah. Yeah. Like you get the, like, there's an unfortunate thing about like with the Duke Leto being like, so such like a good guy that's played by Oscar Isaacs that there's this kind of feeling, you see, he's going to be a good ruler of this people who don't want to be ruled sort of thing. And I feel that like that sort of like illusion kind of gets washed away as you go further in and you discover that, yeah, he was never going to be able to lead these people. These people aren't, it's like, it's like these people are free there they're doing their own thing and they know way more about this than anybody else thought it's like um and that i'm i'm excited for that because that is kind of where this movie eventually is is like ends like aiming towards and by the end you can see that they've taken aim at where they're going to go but it is as you said like a part one and while they do have they do show the people and show the people that were there they spend a lot more time with the uh the colonizers than they do with the people who are being colonized yeah, I do think that part two is going to deal more with the uh, the Kwisat Tadarak or Muad'Dib, yeah. as the Fremen call him, and that that part is is very interesting to me. I think that it was a really good basis, while being a very good standalone film as well. But uh, there's a lot to come, and I'm very excited to see it. Oh, me too. And I think that it was like from our conversation, it is very obvious that this is a strong contender for the. It's like uh, for the AUS uh, like foundation grant in the way that we will follow Denis Villeneuve, especially like definitely into Dune part two. But it's like uh, if he wants to keep on doing 
heady sci-fi. If he wants to go back to doing intense thrillers that are on a much smaller scale, like Sicario or Prisoners, if he just wants to, I don't know, do a spaghetti western, I don't care. I will follow him through whatever is like a trials and tribulations he has waiting for me. <laughs> yep, I agree for sure. He's definitely a strong contender. Sweet. Well, with that, I suppose it's time to move into the next movie, which is also a movie that has um, a very famous director who knows how to move a camera around. This is West Side Story. When you're a jet, you're a jet All the way from your first cigarette To your last dying day When you're a jet, if the spit hits the fan You got brothers around, you're a family man You're never alone You're never disconnected You're home with your own When company's expected You're well protected Then you are set yeah, So this will be the first of two movies where as it, we basically only have a uh, one of the two of us have seen it. So I saw West Side Story, and then Aditi, you saw King Richard. Um, I don't, I don't need to tell you that. You know that. The, the, the audiences <laughs> don't know that. So, so now they know, and knowing is half the battle. Um, so for West Side Story, for those of you who don't know what this is, it's effectively Romeo and Juliet in New York City. Uh, in other words, it's the tale of two young lovers on opposite sides of an intensifying gang roar, gang war, where um, tragedy ensues as does Song and Dance, surprisingly. Uh, so I went into this movie, and I had forgotten that it was Romeo and Juliet, but set in New York. I have never seen the 1960-something um, movie that I think actually won Best Picture back when it came out. I've never seen the musical it's like, uh, on stage. Um, but I have read Romeo and Juliet. It's like, so halfway through, when I kind of discovered what it was, I was like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> um, but there are uh, like some twi- uh, like some twists and turns that are different than that. The big one being that, yeah, this is a musical with song and dance. Um, a lot of like jazz dancing and modern ballet. It's like uh, over the streets of a very grimy New York. And um, this movie is strangely enough for 2021, part of a unofficial trilogy of musicals set in New York, including... Uh, in the Heights and Tick Tick Boom, and of the three, this was the only one that was nominated, is like for Best Picture, and I feel like the vast majority of that is because of Steven Spielberg and his director of photography, cinematography. Here, it is gorgeous. This movie is just gorgeous, and it's it's not like in Dune where like yeah, it's gorgeous, but then like what you're seeing is also gorgeous. So it's kind of like oh yeah, they are shooting pretty like amazing things they made really well as opposed to when this movie were effectively like things that i would not care about at all such as the main romance between the two characters because this is romeo and juliet and there is no chemistry between those two characters they just decide that they're going to be in love and that's okay we're on we're on board with it i suppose but things like their first meeting which happens in like a big like dance or whatnot it is like the filmmaking that's happening, the lighting choices, the way that they're focusing on the characters where there's all this dancing going on around them out of focus. And like, even from across the room, there's like the music has kind of like everything's faded. The sound design is faded. The filmmaking on display made me care about these two when like the material clearly wasn't trying to. And, um, and I feel like that is really fantastic. It's, it's amazing. Um, there are shots from this that are just straight up beautiful 
of like musical numbers where I was like half paying attention because I was like, okay, I get it. You're in love. That's cool. And then there'll be this shot where he just like jumps into a puddle and the puddle is like kind of it's like it's like an overhead shot and the puddle is like reverberating outwards as all the light is dazzling off it and it looks like stars in the puzzle and it's just so good um so like that's fantastic and that is the reason why it was nominated for best picture over other things like tick tick boom which in my opinion is actually a better constructed movie in terms like in a more kind of like interesting musical more definitely more of its time like of this of these times um, or like in the Heights, which probably had the best musical number is like um, of the whole year with its opening number is like, um, but then is like just wasn't nearly as like um, as visually interesting or consistent as this one was. Uh, but yeah, so have you ever seen West Side Story, or do you know much about the um, the musical or the um, the movie that came out in nineteen sixties? Yes, I've I've seen the uh, 1960s uh, West Side Story, and I mean, I'm I'm not really sure that it resonated with me. I think just like you mentioned, uh, the Romeo and Juliet story is something that's been told and retold, and um, I find the music is great, and I find it very catchy and you know hum along. But I'm very excited to see the uh, the Spielberg adaptation um, from what you said because I think that it's been a little bit of a hard buy-in for me and also partly a reason why I haven't gotten around to watching it yet is it's not top of list in terms of content um, as I'm not as into musicals as into sort of romantic dramas but um, you know I feel like your your endorsement of how just gorgeous it is 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 uh, a big plus and I've heard that Ansel Elgort has some some pipes yeah, Ansel Elgort was surprisingly good. And I don't say that as the insult that it definitely is. It's like, it wasn't the intention because it was just that I like, you know, I've seen him in Baby Driver and he's like, he was good in Baby Driver. He had the footwork in Baby Driver for sure. I was like, I think during this podcast, I was like on Baby Driver that it's like, I mentioned how that movie is effectively a musical, but the characters don't sing. He's just kind of like dancing mm-hmm. to his own soundtrack. It's like, um, and I think that works out really well. He's obviously got the footwork here. He also has, yeah, some pretty good um, music, like musical chops. He can sing very well. Um, but he is like, as, as good as he is, he is incredibly outshined by the supporting cast. And yeah. also his co-lead, um, Rachel Zegler, who is like new to movies. This is her first movie, I think. Um, I believe the story that I had heard from another podcast was that she was um, applying for a production of West Side Story in a theater and got rejected and so sent that same tape to Steven Spielberg for the oh and then goodness. got the movie instead. And I'm like, well, that if that isn't just the best one up, then I've never, I, I won't know. Nice. I, that's awesome for her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's just, she's a fantastic singer. And it was to the point that, like, you see her character for a while before she actually sings. And it's, um, and it's just, she, like, lit up the, the screen, like, especially with the, the song Tonight, which, um, I didn't know the West Side Story th- songs very well. I thought I didn't know any of them. And then consistently throughout the movie, I'd be like, oh, this is from that movie? Oh, this is from that movie? Like, I Feel Pretty is from that movie. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> it sort of entrenched itself into the cultural consciousness. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there is like an ongoing uh, debate about this movie that kind of functions on the idea of like, should did we need this 
did we need another version of West Side Story? Because like West Side Story is a story at its heart about a class divide. Um, and I think it's like, um, but it's also about a racial divide between kind of the down and out members of a um, kind of, I don't know, diasporatic white society of like Irish and Polish and I was like, all these immigrants that have kind of just their families have been kind of left behind by the American dream um, versus like a, a growing Puerto Rican community in the uh, is like in it's like New York, which would as they eventually be kicked out of the region that they're in and move northwards into Washington Heights, which would then lead right into the musical in the Heights. So, you know, it's like, it's all connected in its own weird <laughs> way. Um, but this is like, you know, in some ways I feel West Side Story handles this kind of story in an interesting fashion. We are looking at a racial divide between two like people who are struggling at the bottom of a ladder where the people above are in the process of demolishing their neighborhood and re- gentrifying it and replacing it with, as is said in the movie specifically, a bunch of rich white people, which you will all be serving them later. Is like, and I think it is like that. There is some merit to that story being told. At the same time, this is definitely a story that was written for the perspective of a white person and for white people. There's a reason why the vast majority of the beginning of the movie is from the kind of like is like a the quote unquote white trash of the like of the neighborhood's perspective. And then as you go forward, you then start to see more and more of the Puerto Rican side of it because they're effectively trying to like entice the white audience in with the stuff they recognize and then kind of say, but you know, this other side too. And I think it's like, we've um, in some ways, I feel like we've seen enough movies that handhold is like our, uh, the majority white audience through that enough. We've seen enough green books and maybe we've seen enough websites, West side stories as well. Um, and it's especially sad that this came out the same year as In the Heights, which is definitely much more of a story that is about the community, that it's like it's from that perspective. It's about them from the beginning to the end. Um, and uh, it's like in this one got nominated and, and the other one didn't. And I do feel like that the majority of that is craft, but a, a good chunk of it might also be bias. Yeah, I think we have uh, Steven Spielberg behind it. It's hard to say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so... Is like for that for further aspect of that conversation, I would recommend to don't listen to me because I am effectively a uh, triple threat of privilege when it comes to it was like all of that sort of aspects of being a straight white man. Um, but there is a really good podcast called Black Men Don't Jump, uh, Can't Jump in Hollywood, which is like did a uh, an episode on West Side Story, and it was very cool to see a lot of different perspectives brought uh, like onto this story in that way. So I would recommend checking that podcast out if you're interested in seeing that sort of aspect of the um, of the discussion. Um, with all of that said, like, is this film a good representation of 2021? I think I've just kind of showcased how in some ways it definitely is. And in some ways, it's kind of, we're beyond this. And, it's like, and maybe this could have been the last year in which this could be done because we are moving past it as a, as a zeitgeist. Um, so I'm glad that for Spielberg, that he got to do this because I know he's wanted to do it for a long time, but maybe we don't need another one of these. Fair enough. Fair enough. Also try to make it, uh, make it a point to see it and, and catch up on this Oscar viewing before we uh, have our hot takes on the actual Academy Awards. <laughs> oh yeah. There's going to be some hot takes being thrown around, I'm sure. Um, and so in terms of whether this would be like uh, eligible, I keep on trying to say susceptible. Man, what is going on with me today? Anyway, it's like whether this would be eligible for an Arts Union Science Foundation grant is once again a little bit difficult because, yeah, I feel with Spielberg, 
keep giving him money. He will keep making amazing movies. That's the way it's going to go with Rachel Zegler. Who's this kind of like, she's a real find in this like for this movie. I just can't wait to see what she does next. I haven't even mentioned yet. The person who was actually nominated for an Oscar is like Ariana DeBose, who is like, is just like fantastic. She is her dancing is so good in this. Her performance is, is like, is amazing. All of the like, portions of music that actually feature her in it are some of the best like in the in the entire thing so like definitely this cast that director is like maybe different source material i could get behind it so i would say yes i i would i would put these guys forward for is like for that perhaps is it maybe not my um is it maybe not my final decision on the uh the foundation grant but uh, an interesting one to be sure We'll have to watch the others and uh, and put Spielberg against the rest at some point. Oh yeah, which is it's, you know it's like I feel like that's a little scary thing for everybody else when you're going up against Spielberg, but <laughs> you know yeah. what are you going to do? Anyway, with that, it's like we're going to be like moving on to it's like another film great who's been coming is like uh, back to bat uh, for the Oscars over and over again, and maybe this will be the year that he gets it. I'm of course talking about Will Smith and King Richard. So it's like you saw this one, I didn't. Um, it's like so, tell me, tell me about it. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. So um, this film, I sort of uh, wanted to catch up on only because I have a storied history with you know uh, having played tennis uh, since elementary school and having grown up seeing a lot of these legends um, come up through my childhood. The Williams sisters, especially, being. Um, uh, two sisters who who shot to superstardom essentially um, in the mid to late 90s through into the early 2000s, essentially winning every single uh, major tournament that they entered and doubles and everything, that it was sort of hard to avoid wanting to know a little bit from the biopic um, perspective of it. So essentially, just to sort of summarize what King Richard is about, it's a biopic of Richard Williams, who was the father of uh, Venus and Serena Williams, and so how he shaped his daughters into tennis champions and essentially fought to bring them out of uh, a tough life in Compton to the world stage. And he had a very unorthodox way of doing it, and a lot of that is detailed in this film as well. And it was definitely very well cast, as you alluded to, Tyler, in terms of Will Smith playing Richard Williams, and he plays him I would say to perfection in terms of what I know from having seen um, Richard in, in interviews and um, courtside as the Williams sisters were playing through a lot of their major matches. Um, and it was very well cast in terms of uh, the two girls who were cast to play uh, Venus um, and Serena Williams, Sunia, Sydney, and Demi Singleton. They had, um, at least in, in Sunia's case, he, she plays uh, Venus, who was sort of the central focus of 
uh, the coaching and the, the tennis tutelage in the film as the older daughter. Um, she had apparently never played tennis before and learned to play tennis for this film. And I thought it was um, done very believably as someone who has watched the Williams sisters play and, and plays tennis myself and had really good uh, set design and, and atmosphere as well. I think as a, as a 90s kid, I was feeling quite nostalgic over some of the some of the vibes and clothing that were were um, displayed. Um, but I would say in terms of the actual like subject matter, it was very predictable. Um, mm. I have to admit that I wasn't a hundred percent invested when I was watching the movie. It was one that I, you know, watched at home and I have to admit there was a little bit of distraction and, you know, folding of laundry and such while I was watching this because it was so predictable. And obviously you can't, change the story or change their lives for the sake of the movie because it is autobiographical or biographical at least um but it also did get Venus and Serena's um sign off when uh it was screened so I think that essentially the way it was brought to fruition was they they created the film but before they were able to distribute it or anything they wanted um buy-in from Venus and Serena so I think to to get that buy-in there has to be a certain angle that the movie is filmed from and you could definitely tell there was that bias um, mm. which then created you know predictable melodrama when they went to play matches and um, you know you're rooting for them but at the same time you you kind of know that you don't need to because you know that things are going to work out well because otherwise how else would they make this movie right yeah. Um, so, I mean, good casting and good performances, but I also felt like the movie went very quickly, like it was a very fast pace. Um, I mean, the runtime is over two hours. Um, it does it does feel like all of those, you know, uh, two hours and 25 minutes, but um, fast paced from the sense it, you know, moved from them practicing on, you know, a, a uh, sort of, derelict uh, tennis court in Compton to, you know, the danger that they have in their neighborhood um, to uh, being picked up by a coach to, you know, starting to train with the very best in the sport. Um, and then like suddenly you're watching uh, a match that Venus is playing on the world stage with the number one tennis player at the time. And it just, it felt, very rushed in that sense without necessarily emotionally investing in each of these successes that they have because I think that is what the real focus of this was for me or maybe should have been um, in my opinion that they they did have a hard life and that you know um, Richard and his wife Brandy are like working all hours to you know put food on the table and a roof over their heads and um you see glimpses of their sort of difficult life um, uh, with, you know, various stepdaughters um, from previous relationships and them all living under the same roof and, you know, living together as a family without maybe necessarily focusing on the tennis quite as much. But, you know, good movie, but nothing I would rewatch necessarily. Right. Yeah, I find that my kind of appetite for biopics like um has really declined in the past couple of years 
which is why I was selfishly happy when you decided to take this film. It's like on, it's like on your shoulders to be able to like go through it because after like Bohemian Rhapsody, I was effectively like, I think I'm done with watching biopics where it's like, oh, it's like, look at this person. Because yeah, you're right. They are incredibly predictable. And that's not to say that like a person's life is predictable, but it's that they almost seem to have a like a set structure for how these things are supposed to go. And so they'll take a life and they'll mm-hmm. compress certain parts of it and they'll expand other ones in order to make sure that it fits into this kind of like existing structure like aspect. And so I don't know if that was the case in this movie, but from yeah. what you're describing, you have kind of like certain things getting glossed over, other things they were like really putting a heavy emphasis on the melodrama of these like specific moments that does scream to be very much a kind of like, oh, we were watching these people's lives as portrayed by every other biopic structure in Hollywood. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it for me as well. And um, I had the same sentiment of like, oh, I haven't watched a biopic since Bohemian Rhapsody. And I have, um, you know, some some things to say about Bohemian Rhapsody that, you know, we can save for a future podcast if we need to revisit it. <laughs> but I think that, there were some issues that I felt were present there that I feel are also present here. And I think it's, it's sort of hard to avoid maybe in doing a biopic. And I think I've seen very few, like very good biopics. And this is, I think, further um, entrenched in being combined with essentially a sports movie as well. So I think there's a lot of the like melodrama from a biopic and like, you know, trials and tribulations in someone's very real life combined with like the the drama and competitive fervor that a sports movie has and I will be the first person to tell you that I'm not someone who tends to gravitate towards sports films and I'm not like oh I'd love to watch this team you know make it to the world series and then win the final match and so I think combining the two is a little bit of an ill-fated uh uh, combination um for me and it's i think also a type of movie that's very uh oscars academy you know uh fodder almost for them because it's very easy for them to be like this was a good performance because look at this real person look at this person that they're portraying on screen oh hey they look and sound the same hence good performance yeah i don't begrudge them that but i mean to me it was just a little bit strange to kind of just see actor after actor showing up on screen and king richard being like oh hey this person's playing pete sampras yes you look and kind of sounds like pete sampras this person's playing this other tennis player jennifer capriati she looks from a distance like a little bit like jennifer capriati and like that's cool um, and it, it just, it was, it took me a little bit out of the movie that way as well. This sort of comparison of real to on screen. Right. Yeah. It's like, that's always the kind of thing that they're, they're risking, right. Whenever you do a biopic and there's some people who have decided to do it like very differently. They're like, there are moments where they're like, Oh, they're, they're this person. It's like, do they look like that person. No, they're not doing their mannerisms, but they, you know, they're trying to like tell the story as opposed to the thing. And sometimes that's like less distracting than when someone's doing a bad rendition like of, uh, of another person. Uh, there's a really cool um, series on the YouTube the channel Wired where they have like an accent, um, like a linguistic and like an accent coach come on and like talk about actors who are doing like idiolects, like the kind of 
specific way that different people speak and how difficult it is to try and like entrench right. that into a performance. Um, and so do you feel like, because I know that I've seen Will Smith do idiolect and kind of stuff before in like, as like Ali, when he was playing like Muhammad Ali, um, mm -hmm. is like, and uh, is like, I what I would have felt to to mix uh, success, but other people thought that he, he did a very good job. So you do feel like he is, uh, he's really like captured the essence of this character in a way that is useful for is like as a uh is like for the film but then also for a uh, best picture nomination yeah i think so um like his performance is very good in the film and you know nothing to take away from him um i think that the the source material just didn't um you know bring as much to the screen but his uh his performance is very much like how Richard Williams sounds and acts and um, whatever I've obviously seen from my limited experience in seeing his his interviews and courtside demeanor. So he was very, very good. Um, I think that this kind of film just suffers from the fact that it's, it's hinging on mostly that as the yeah. performance. And that the, the biopics, or maybe I wouldn't even call them biopics, like movies like you know, Judas and the Black Messiah mm -hmm. um, focused on specific, you know, historical and political characters, but also tell like a greater story of the, you know, political climate at the time and something like Spotlight as well, you know, based on like real people, but, you know, the actual um, uh, events as well. And I think that the events here in King Richard being of the nature of like his coaching and you know the tennis matches didn't flesh out the movie enough to take away from that single-minded focus yeah yeah no that's fair and i as i think that's going to be something i can see that biopics or like the idea of like based on a true story movies are shifting away from kind of a um what they used to call a like cradle to is a like cradle to grave um biopics that kind of try to show an entire person's life and they focus more on individual events and kind of span it out into the larger setting so that's things like judas and the black messiah or even like the steve jobs movie like mm -hmm. those sort of things i think that is really where biopics are starting to head as they head in towards and i'm i'm here for that um this kind of older style is like is not necessarily for me anymore um would you say that this movie is a good representation of 2021? Uh, hard to say because it's very much a representation of the 1990s. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that it tried with some success to describe um, the, the racial divides in, in Compton, California, and um, essentially the difficulties of, you know, uh, digging yourself out of uh, a tough financial situation and sort of a life and um, like Orsine Price, uh, their, their mother, Venus and Serena's mother is like clearly working two jobs and Richard is working a night shift as a security guard, um, but then spending his like days after their school to not only focus on, you know, getting straight A's and, you know, doing well at school, but also to train them. And so um, I think that the ever present struggle that, um, you know, those who unfortunately just are financially um, oppressed face, as well as, you know, the racial tensions are are still relevant. But I think that the focus was more on, you know, Venus and Serena and their tennis stardom. So I'm not sure if I would necessarily say it was a great 
representation of that. And then on the other side, um, would you be interested in seeing something that this same cast and like and filmmakers would do in the future if they were to go at it from like a, a different movie? I mean, I think that I'm always somewhat interested in what Will Smith has to do. He he tends to um, pick very interesting films, whether for better or for worse. Um, I'm not sure if Hitch is really a movie that I would recommend anybody watch, but um, he has a very interesting filmography and I would definitely, you know, be interested in seeing what he has to make. I'm not familiar with the director quite as much and mm. I'm not sure um, what, uh, um, I guess, uh, scope uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green has for his uh, future work. I think that there will be some future work coming from him. He's been managed to sign on Will Smith and, and garner some some uh, mixed success with this biopic mm -hmm. um but uh, i'm not sure if i'm super excited necessarily just because of my experience is still so limited from what i've seen from him yeah he is one of the few directors in this kind of like cast of 10 that isn't a known commodity really like isn't like a a um steven spielberg or a denis Villeneuve or an adam even an adam mckay um like, so it'll be interesting to see what he does next with this, like this success that he's had. And uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Anything that Will Smith does, I think like, I'm always kind of semi interested in. I'm, I find it interesting that you chose Hitch because in my head, that's not even close to his worst movies <laughs> of like, <laughs> like there's like, you got Wild Wild West and you got After Earth. There's like, there's so much bad Will Smith out there now. I, I, I actually, I don't, I don't mind Hitch. I, th I think it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not, you know, like Oscar worthy, if you will. So. Oh, no, that's fair. That's fair. Although it's like the uh, the scene where Kevin James runs back and forth between a taxi and his girlfriend getting is like taking like heading off in a car, screaming alternatively Allegra and taxi. Uh, like you know, best supporting actor at least. Like I feel like that would have been fine. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could have also mentioned, you know. Uh, collateral beauty uh, yeah. uh aladdin um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm trying to think what else i've seen but you know like i i really liked watching you know i am legend he kept me going i was on the yeah. you know edge of my seat there and i think he's he's also cultivated a fan base with uh, men in black and bad boys oh yeah um uh independence day but i don't i don't know if uh if necessarily something maybe super serious is something that I'm very excited about seeing him in, but he's had, he's had mixed success. And I mean, he's like a, he's a, he's a family uh, household name and uh, you know, has many talents for sure. Yeah. And in some ways I will be rooting for him on, on Oscar night, uh, not necessarily because I think that his was the best performance. I haven't seen it, but simply, you know, just because it'd be nice. It'd be nice if good old Will Smith could get himself a like an Oscar. He's tried for so hard, and he got so close with the pursuit of happiness. That's true. That's true. And in terms of uh, like subject matter, I think that was like one of the more serious roles he's done, and probably poised him in the best position. But now they can actually compare Richard Williams on screen to Richard Williams in real life and determine were they similar. Did he? Who did it best? The actual Richard Williams or Will Smith? Um, and similarly to Steven Spielberg versus other directors, going up against Will Smith, even if it's in portrayal of your own life, never something you necessarily want to 
find yourself in that's a that's a tough fight to win yeah that being said there's some actors nominated for leading role that uh that i'm a little bit more excited about yeah and actually one might be coming up quite soon in our next and final film to discuss for this episode uh the power of the dog This is the newest film out by Jane Campion, who I am incredibly, incredibly ashamed of myself to say I had never seen one of her films before. Not The Pianist, not any of her other films that she's done. And granted, she hasn't done one for quite some years now. Um, I share the same shame, Tyler. Don't worry. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad we can be shameful together in our, in our pursuits. Yeah, don't worry, or I guess worry that you're listening to, um, to podcast co-hosts that are new Jane Campion fans. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is, an, this is an issue even in scientific grant panels all the time, right? People will write in, they, they'll, uh, they'll send in their grants on a particular field, and it's very possible that all the members of the panel, none of them might be from that field. They might not know anything about this particular thing. And uh, so that's why you have to write your grants in such a way that even just a, a neophyte who knows nothing of what you do can still appreciate the importance. And definitely The Power of the Dog is, if nothing else, a very strong calling card and an, a, uh, a good kick in the butt to go and like, check out more Jane Campion films. Um, but for those of you who have not seen it, you might be wondering, what is this film about? Um, the summary that I have written down <laughs> is... An asshat of a cowboy takes an effeminate youth under his wing, only to discover that his definition of strength may need to be reworked. Um, That's fantastic, actually. I have something <laughs> very similar written down. Um, I have the words volatile and troubled and uh, taunting. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> those are all <laughs> words that are, are also involved in my summary here. They can all be summed up by the uh, the catch-all phrase that is asshat. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> um, okay, so this film uh, is out on Netflix. It is like by all accounts right now the favorite to win uh, Best Picture. I think is like um, the ongoing narrative over the past many many moons has been uh, Belfast versus The Power of the Dog. Um, Sometimes have being on top for so long and everyone thinking you're going to win can actually be a problem in the Oscars. So who knows what will actually happen um, that fateful March day when the, the names are read. But for the moment, it seems like The Power of the Dog has quite a good momentum going forward. And so there's a good chance that quite a few people have seen it. Um, but for those of you who haven't, it'd be nice to kind of go through and look at kind of the strengths and weaknesses that show up here. Um, we were just talking about Will Smith and how he's going to be going up against some like some sharp talent when it comes to the best picture race, uh, best is it not the best picture race, the best actor in a leading role race. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I think once again, like Benedict Cumberbatch in this in this film is like ready to go toe to toe with him. Like that, this performance from him is quite impressive, considering that it, I saw it like the same day that I saw Spider Man No Way Home, where he plays Doctor Strange <laughs> in a state of like what seems to like don't get me wrong he's doing great work in that movie but you but it's just like a completely different caliber like his like what he's doing here is so much less just let's put benedict cumberbatch on screen so he can be smarmy for a bit it's much more of like a, this is a character study and the entirety of this movie is hanging from the very bowed legs of this man <laughs> yes he he definitely i would say you know to our listeners that he plays a role that he's never played before. And um, if you're surprised when I say Benedict Cumberbatch and rugged in the same sentence, that's exactly what he is. Because he's usually very, like, polished and, you know, suave. Um, if you heard the word effeminate and thought of him, that's incorrect in this movie. <laughs> yep, he, yep. he plays a very, very different role. And apparently he's in shower for a while for this role as well. And so the grime that you see is real. He's, he made his own grime. That's impressive. Exactly. And apparently also didn't talk to uh, Kirsten Dunst on set to keep the animos- animosity of their characters sort of uh, in person as well. Like he didn't want to be the friendly dude that he is to her so that they could keep their tensions on screen. Oh, poor Kirsten Dunst. Like it's this movie is nominated for like four actors are nominated from this movie. Like the the central four, Jesse Plemons and Kristen Dunst are all both like uh, both nominated. As is, um, oh, why didn't I write down his name? Cody Smith like, McPhee, the son. Thank yeah, you. Both he and Jesse Plemons are supporting role nominees, and uh, we have Kristen Dunst, uh, I believe, also nominated in supporting actress. So Power of the Dog is really coming in with some some heft. Yeah, and so like, and all of them do a great job. Like, they're they're fantastic. Jesse Plemons and Kristen Dunst are actually married in real life, which I did not know until <laughs> until I was uh, looking up stuff for this. And Jesse Plemons, you know, ever since he showed up in Breaking Bad, he's just always uh, he's always a pleasure whenever he's on screen. He's like whether it's um I'm thinking of ending things or his fun turn in uh, Game Night, where he plays the the crazed cop that doesn't get to be part of Game Night. Um, yeah. he's, uh, or he's doing a great job. Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons in a uh, season of Fargo, essentially oh, yeah. um, losing their minds and mismanaging their lives, and things just sort of go sideways very quickly, as they do in Fargo generally. But, yes, it's um, a, that's something they've yeah. held over from the Coen brothers in general the idea of like people way over their heads mismanaging their lives. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And and there's a little bit of mismanagement in this film as well in terms of the way their lives go. Yeah, yeah, it's like this movie has a scene at the beginning that like, it's just it's like an establishing scene very early on. And it's effectively Benedict Cumberbatch walking across a field at like magic hour um, towards his house. He's got this like strut going on of like the man who's been riding horses for too long. Bowlegged, I believe is the term. The camera is set inside the house and is like following him. But in order to follow, it has to laterally track between windows. And it's like, and meanwhile, like Johnny Greenwood's score is like having this like fun, shrill violin thing going on. And it's just like, I'm watching this. I am not invested in the characters at all yet because I don't know anything about them. 
And I'm just kind of mad because I'm already really like they've already got me. Like I'm already so in. And I'm like, how did you do that? Like, how can you be so good at your job that like Jane Campion and director of photography and like in Johnny Greenwood and Benedict Cumberbatch? How are you all so good at your job that like within the first 10 minutes of this movie, you already have me. And I'm like, and it's, I, I feel myself getting a little pissed. <laughs> I'm like, it's like, I will never be as good at as any at anything as these people are at their job. <laughs> I mean, I think that even before we hit the uh, the um, absolutely gorgeous cinematography and um, uh, you know directing, um, that the film opens actually even before that, and I had to sort of rewatch it to get a a good idea of what was happening. It starts with just a voiceover of Cody mm-hmm. Smith McPhee's character, um, Peter. And he says, when my father passed, I wanted nothing more than my mother's happiness. And so then you kind of immediately get drawn into like, what is going on? Like, why is this person talking about their mother? And then you see Kirsten Dunn's character and then you, you start essentially rooting for her throughout the film. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's very easy to root for her in this because Benedict Cumberbatch is such an ass. Like he's so mean throughout the course of this, and it, like he's like he reminds me a little bit of the character like Gregory House from the medical drama House. Yeah. In the in the way that he's a man that's obviously damaged, he has issues that he's carrying with him. There's like and an idea of what masculinity and strength is. Yeah. And kind of he uses those things as weapons. It's like uh, more than a shields now. Like at, maybe at one point it was a shield, but now he's like gotten really good at taking that shield and using it as like a freaking sword. And he's like damaging all the people around him all the time. And um, it's interesting to me that like a lot of people call this this movie slow. And I think it is very slow. It takes its time at really revealing what its internal message and its theme is. And like we always talk about character arcs and how like a character progresses throughout the, and there's a lot of character arcs that is that, that are in this movie. Um, but really I think the, the greatest thing of this movie for me is that it has like a thematic arc in the way that my perception of what the theme was shifted and changed as we went through. And as we learned more about the characters and that kind of progression, they like you get to the very end of the movie and that's like, you've been waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole time. And it finally does at the end. And it's like, it resonates so well with like a very, very thick ponderous thud that really makes you like, kind of was like stumble your way from the weather. It was like, well, I was going to say the theater, but I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it at home. So I stumbled my way out of the living room and into the kitchen and it was like, had to kind of like talk myself through what I had just seen. And I think, that that has kind of turned a few people off in terms of it was too slow at the beginning. It changed in everything that they thought the movie was. But for me, I think that that was, that was the best part of it is like, is this kind of journey to discovering yeah. what the movie's really about. Yeah. I think that it's, it's almost like that slow burn kind of lures you into thinking that the film is about one thing. And then it slowly pivots to the point where you don't even detect what's happening and it suddenly becomes about something totally different. Like eventually the movie starts as a relationship between these two brothers um, mm-hmm. as played by Jesse Plemons and Benedict Cumberbatch, And you, you definitely see the like differences between these two brothers. Um, you know, for context, this movie is set in, you know, 1920s Montana, despite being not filmed entirely in New Zealand. But, you know, you can believe it. It's a gorgeous landscape regardless. And I've never been to Montana. So I'll, you know, take it for what it's worth. 
but it sort of starts as, as that relationship between the two brothers. And then you introduce this like third party or third and fourth party into the dynamic of the family when uh, George goes, George is played by Jesse Plemons, goes and um, marries um, uh, poor innkeeper is played by Kirsten Dunst who has um, a son um, and these two parties come and like live with these two brothers and then Benedict Gumberbatch is just like vitriolic towards them and makes their lives very difficult and then the movie sort of changes from the relationship between these two brothers because at one point I think Jesse Plemons' character is largely sort of absent because he has to go to town for whatever reason as part of business and you just see these uh, these two people, this boy, uh, his wife and her son, left alone with the brother-in-law, and uh, the struggles that they have during that. But I think as as you see these relationships develop, you also sort of wonder what um, uh, Phil's backstory is and why he's the way he is, and so almost toxically masculine. You you know you. Um, and is there some kind of underlying relationship that he's overcompensating for with his over masculinity and um, ruggedness and uh, I guess outward aggression? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an interesting character. It's like a one that like you learn much more about as you go through. And the so we're in this we're in this kind of way right now where we're we're doing spoiler free here for the like for the most part it's like and so we're i'm trying to like not get into the it's like the the ending a whole lot but i think the ending is really it's one of those movies where it kind of like it hangs on how well you take the kind of the end and the reveal of it um and sometimes that's not a good thing like for instance you look at like you know like the sixth sense is the movie that launched a thousand people who thought that all of you needed to do a, a good movie was to have a nice twist at the end. The problem is that oftentimes you spend so much time waiting for the twist that nothing else is like, has any merit to it. Yeah. Like the rest of M. Night Shyamalan's films. <laughs> like the rest of M. Night Shyamalan's movies. Exactly. They tried to recreate that magic and it, it's hard if you're relying on one moment. Yeah, exactly. And so I think for this movie though, it's like, it can be said that even though there is a twist near the end, even though there is this kind of like big thematic reveal of what we've been looking at the whole time. Like I was never bored with anything else. I think like even the stuff, even though that like the, the end kind of changes the movie and elevates it, everything that you're watching throughout is still very, very good. And it's great to see like uh, the awesome performances. There's like the great, um, the, yeah, the New Zealand landscape is like, which is, you know, I'm looking at them like, ah, look at those American vistas. What? New Zealand. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> New Zealand apparently just has everything. It's like it has every landscape known to man. Yeah, yeah. And if you look closely, you'll see a little bit of Thomas and Mackenzie as well in the film. Um, yeah, yeah, she's great. From, you know, of Jojo Rabbit and Last Night in Soho um, fame. Yeah. That uh, she sort of shows up in almost like a little bit part. Like she's just a, like a maid in the home. Um, the other thing that I found actually really interesting, and I'd like to get your take on this as well, is um, not only the landscape, but the actual lifestyle that they're living. Um, mm -hmm. it, it almost seems at odds with the times that they're in, because from what I understand, the 1920s was sort of the 
the tail end of sort of the the wild west like ranch hens um lifestyle um mm-hmm. like independent sort of ranchers moving to you know larger agriculture and larger companies and more organized um farming and cattle ranching um yeah. and so it it's sort of a, a push and pull between um phil benedict gumberbatch's character who's sort of hanging almost desperately onto this old way of life because he's made it everything that he's about um whereas George, you see Jesse Plemons always dressed in like a suit. Like even when he's on a horse, he's sort of like almost too well dressed to be on the horse. And he's more about the like business side of it. And it's clear that they're in a family that has been brought up with a great deal of um privilege and possibly mm-hmm. wealth, but they're choosing to stay within ranching. And so that that cultural clash as denoted by the two brothers and those sort of almost decades that they choose to stay in one kind of staying back in the twenties and the other kind of wanting to move forward with a family and with, you know, more business interests was very interesting to me as well. Yeah, that is very interesting aspect. Like definitely, I think the best Westerns that are made in the modern era are the ones that are dealing with the tail end of it, because you do watch the kind of like, I think there's kind of even for the people like myself who didn't spend a lot of time watching John Wayne movies or any of that sort of stuff, there is a collective consciousness of the West, like the Wild West as like an era. And we're like kind of, I wouldn't say that I am actively nostalgic for it in any way, shape or form, but there is some sort of strange kind of like resemblance of like, oh, remember. And I think that being able to see the tail end of it when you're watching these human beings who've had a lifestyle like this for so long, slowly having to like lose it is like, or it's like, or the knowledge that when they're gone, it's done. Like they're like, that's sort of the idea. It's very interesting in this one because Phil, who is, as you said, the guy who's like desperately clinging to this past version of what it was like to be masculine in like the West like it seems like that wasn't always his life because he went to like wasn't it Harvard or something like that like he is a graduate of like a large university he had the kind of like version of a quote unquote modern life at one point yeah and it's like he's chosen to become a rancher even though he yeah. could have gone a very different way so instead of being like a relic from the past he's a person who's dug up a relic and become possessed by it in a way that is like really intense it's like and i think considering what we learn about him and what might what he might have been running from in in himself is like and as well as what the life of a modern thing might have allowed him to explore more in ways that he didn't want to um it is interesting to see that like yeah the the holding on to the past in this case isn't something he was necessarily born into but something he's found and adopted as like a shield as a protection yeah with all that in mind, I think that despite the fact this is set in the 1920s, it's like um, it is very much a good representation of 2021 and an argument that we are still having about mass, uh, like toxic masculinity, about what the true nature of strength is in terms of it's like both genders, but it's like especially in terms of the usual assumption of what male strength actually looks like. Um, I think those things are as they are brought up very well here, and I think they are only going to get more pertinent as we go on into the uh, the new century. Yeah, I definitely agree that that sort of masculinity and toxic masculinity is at the forefront, and I think that 
even though it's set in the 1920s, the movie is more about the interactions within a family and um, that I think can translate to any time period, sort of whether it's good or bad relationships between them. And I think also just, as we've alluded to before, the transition between, you know, one era to another. Um, I think we're, we're in a transitionary period now as well, politically and um, otherwise in terms of social upheaval and cultural change that, you know, always occurs at crucial junctures um, in in history. No, and with that also in mind, is like, a person so Jane Campion is like a, a filmmaker that we both said that we are ashamed that we haven't seen any of her stuff. It is great to see that she's had a chance to um to like to do like something on this scale to do it in a genre that is usually so is like male centric and is like and uh and heavily focused on is like on that aspect to even take that aspect and make it the central theme and do such a good job with it. Um, and then it'll be, I would personally be excited to see what she does next. But before I can see what she does next, I think I probably have to go back and see all the stuff she's done already. Because it's pretty great to see that when you find a quote unquote new, as in new to you filmmaker, and then you can look back and see all the films they've done already. It's like they already have, like, they already have the future waiting for you. It's just in the past. I was literally going to say the same thing. Like, I'm looking forward to what she, you know, will make upcoming but i really need to catch up on our filmography and you know if she spends as long between power of the dog and her next film i think i'll have a lot of time to catch up on her existing filmography um especially starting with the piano mm-hmm. to watch yep. that um but yeah i mean i i will if i was given a bankroll i would bankroll any film she makes for sure for sure yeah, and so we're coming to the end now of this first foray into a grant panel. We have looked at five of our nominees, gone through their strengths, their weaknesses, and their eligibility. Yeah, look at that. Nailed it. Um, for the two different types of like grants that we have here. Um, so before we close the episode out, I'd just like to get any final thoughts you have on kind of the movies you've seen so far, on any sort of trends you might be seeing, and um, what you're excited to talk about next week. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a really good uh, group of movies and they tackle very diversely different subjects, which is not always the case. Like sometimes you're sort of a general leaning towards one social construct or, or cultural topic. Um, but I mean, they're they're all making very strong statements and I'm very excited to look into the other uh, half of the Best Picture nominees and I'll see if I can you know, watch a couple of other nominees as well for, for other categories to kind of flesh out our discussion. But but very excited to, to continue our discussion here and to revisit all of them to make our own decisions and final picks. Yeah, I've, uh, I've also been trying to catch up on some movies that are outside of the best picture stuff, including the best animated feature, where I think I've seen almost all except for Flea at this point. Um, and it's been a fun time. I think it shall continue to be a fun time. I'm excited to see what movies that we have waiting, whether it be three-hour Japanese dramas or one-and-a-half-hour Irish dramas in black and white, or um, just going outside at all and saying, hell, I'm just going to go and I'm going to watch The Tragedy of Macbeth. Don't care if it's nominated for Best Picture or not. I want to watch it, and I think I will. I think I will as well, and we can just sort of 
sort of shove that into our discussion maybe if time allows. I think we're going to get to the end of our first episode of the grant panel. We don't have acknowledgement sections in grant panels generally, but you know, just a few solid thanks to Brett Kinrad for our music, uh, for Felicity Janes for our editing, and for you, the wonderful viewers out there who have continued to listen through, somehow made it through the beginning where we were just complaining about cell phones for a bit, and then got into our fun actual like uh, film discussion. Uh, if you'd like to write in about any of the films we've discussed or about the films that we're going to be discussed, um, feel free to email us at artsunionscience at gmail.com, all one word with no caps. Um, you can also find us at Facebook. We have a small little community there, but not on Twitter because Twitter is a hellscape and I refuse to partake. Um, thank you for joining us for this week and we'll see you again in one week's time for the next Arts Union Science Grant Your session with the Arts, Union, Science Journal has expired. Please try again later.